electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. The people make friends, just trying to make some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Everybody's worried about either a brutal recession or rampant inflation. Even on a good day like this, where the Dow gained 70 points, S&P climbed 0.36%, NASDAQ advanced 0.35%. You even hear people fretting about stagflation, the prospect of a half-dead economy with prices that just keep going higher. But any market that's so at odds about inflationary growth versus a recession might very well end up in a halcyon-like middle. A no-growth, low-inflation scenario with no recession. Just plain old stagnation before reacceleration with less inflation. Now, there's a ton of confusion out there. Long-term interest rates have been going down pretty consistently for the last few weeks, including this morning when we saw more downward pressure on commodities. But then as the price of oil continues to fall, now down roughly 25 bucks from its peak, bonds reversed and rates started going higher. So which move is right? When the market can't make up its mind on an issue like the inflationary growth versus recession question, I find that often the answer falls somewhere in between. Now, there's there's really a great debate going on right now, which is why did rates fall so hard to begin with? Was it the benign decline in the price of commodities, something that means the Fed might not have to raise interest rates as aggressively, Or was it a malignant recession that's causing a decline in demand and earnings are about to fall apart? And optimist says it's the first one. The Fed tamped down on inflation and speculation via tough talk and three increasing severe rate hikes. Uh, So we're in for a soft landing and we might get a bull market in cheap, profitable companies, especially stocks that benefit uh, from lower commodity prices, which is what we're getting. But a pessimist, of which I'd say is the majority, a pessimist looks at the same data points and says 
we're going to have a deep recession. This pain is just beginning. So it's clearly not too late to sell. That's what I hear most of the time. Why is it not too late to sell? Because earnings are going to evaporate and stocks are going to get hit pretty hard. So why the heck is it so hard to figure out which camp is right? Well, because there's genuine confusion. First, because we probably are somewhere in between. Uh, and we, uh, we have to see some signs that the Fed has beaten not commodity inflation, but wage inflation. Got to do them both before we can confidently say that the pain is over. Until then, we could go either way. Second is the Fed, meetings, uh, Fed meeting minutes from the June meeting that were released today illustrate. We know they're committed to raising rates, but they didn't say we'll do one big hike and wait which is what you do if you believe that there needs to be certainty about less inflation. Remember, inflation in this bed must be killed, not just wounded. So I understand how they feel. Third, I think we're all being thrown off by the concept of who over-earned at the height of the pandemic. Initially, we figured it was only a handful of companies, right? Peloton, DocuSign, Zoom, Roku, uh, you know the list. But one by one, we discovered many other post-COVID pariahs. The video game stocks suffered tremendously, even as their businesses haven't really slowed. They just returned to normalcy. The streaming stocks have been smashed. Netflix is the worst performer of the year. Disney, much to my charitable trust chagrin, has been crushed because the company can't shake off the fact that it, too, must be hurting because of Disney Plus, even though that's just one piece of the pot. We've even uh, we've only recently decided that there was over earning all over the place. It's principally, I'd say, underneath pretty much all of the declines that I've seen. The serious ones is the over earning. For instance, the stocks of NVIDIA and AMD, they have been crushed because they make lots of gaming-related chips, and Wall Street now thinks gaming's in decline, so therefore those companies must be hurting. Those, are same, those same chips are used for cryptocurrency mining. That's another nasty area. HP and Intel have seen their stocks plummet because their bottom lines were boosted by a COVID-era home office build-out. Now that's over. HP and Intel will have a very hard time bouncing back. Same goes for Best Buy, Williams, Sonoma, and Wayfair, although the first two are excellent companies with very cheap stocks, but they need rate cuts, and those are on the horizon that I can see. Now we still have one more derivative, the Internet itself. Several research firms have pointed out this week that Internet use is actually down this year, something almost no one thought could happen. That hurts all the companies that have benefited from the Internet's growth, including the warehouse plays and that enable e-commerce. It hurts the Fastly's, the Cloudflare's, it hurts the Akamai's, all involved with making the Internet work better. It lays the way so many online apparel companies, Stitch Fix, Postmark, and it even damages the, the case for the trade desks. And then finally, yes, the Googles and Facebooks, the whole online advertising edifice. It also explains the colossal underperformance of Amazon. When I say over-earning, I mean they made a lot of money thanks to the pandemic, and now that things are basically back to normal, that makes it seem like they're experiencing a slowdown. Really, it's just a reversion to the mean, but don't tell people that. They just think it's getting bad, and they want to sell. They don't even know what a reversion to the mean means. It's a tough concept. It just means it's going back. The commodity decline could be uh, because we're headed into a recession, but it might also mean that we're speculators who bought up all sorts of commodities to take advantage of the expected shortages caused by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The trade fell apart when the shortages failed to materialize, especially in oil, but also in food, by the way, at least for many parts of the, uh, let's say, of the wealthier world. When Russia simply found a way to offload its sanctioned crude to India and China, well, that was it price of, of, of oil did come down. By the way, if you want to see a, a chart of food, look at this chart of John Deere. It's really incredible. Notice I'm attributing none of these declines to what everyone attributes every decline to, which is the Fed. At the end of the day, the Fed couldn't predict what a post-pandemic world would look like any better than the rest of us. And they couldn't certainly, certainly couldn't predict the complications caused by the war in Ukraine. 
You throw in China's unexpected lockdowns, okay, with the resulting supply chain issues, and it's very hard to make any kind of forecast. Given those cross currents, it's incredibly difficult to figure out whether we're about to go into recession or a soft landing, because the Fed may have already won its war against commodity inflation, it is definitely winning its war against housing and even rental inflation, and it may soon win the war against wage inflation. More on that later. Boy, the stakes are high. The banks are due to report soon. If the recession camp is in charge, the market will go down on every report of loan loss uh, ticks upward, which will be regarded as the more important than the even the higher net interest margins the financials are getting thanks to the Fed. However, I think that won't happen. Instead, we'll be impressed with the money the banks are making off their deposits. I mean, remember, the depositors don't get much more than uh, you get now. But think how much the banks are making. Again, there could be a third way, though. There wasn't enough, there wasn't enough stock and bond market activity for the trading businesses, so the stocks could look, go lower just on that thesis. Then the consumer package companies report they've been able to raise prices while their raw costs, often based on oil and gas inputs, have started falling. Meanwhile, their dividends look more compelling with lower bond prices. That could be an amazing moment for the consumer packaged goods plays unless people say, well, the dollar's so strong, we don't want them. Tech goes up next, and I think there will be a severe bifurcation in this group. The ones that are profitable with stocks that sell well below historic multiples, think Micron, should rally. But the unprofitable companies that are selling sales, I think their stocks fall once again. And it's not too late on this one little bounce to get out of what I regard as being the Kathy Wood stocks. Why am I more sanguine than just about everyone else though about the market? Because I think I'm more cognizant, having been out at this game for 40 years, that the damage already been meted out is severe. I don't like to hate a market that has come down this far. Here's the bottom line. At these levels, many stocks already reflect a recession. So if we merely get a stagnant economy that will then reaccelerate, then stocks could go much higher. But if the Fed disagrees with me and hits us with more than just one last big rate hike, but says, here's one and many more coming, I will have to recalibrate, and the market will have even more downside. I think I'm going to be right, though. Let's go to Jerry in my home state of New Jersey. Jerry! Hi, Jim. Thanks Jerry. for having me on the show and everything, and congratulations on your move to New York. Uh, oh, I'm very excited. The set is gorgeous. It's going to be a rebirth. <clears throat> Look, I've been doing it here for 17 years, and it is really time for a change. And I'm very uh, grateful to the network for giving that to me. How can I help? Yeah. So I have a question about Darlene Ingredients. Um, looking over the, the stock for the, like, the past year, this thing has been highly volatile and everything. Um, do you see anything where this thing might kind of straighten up and, and maybe bottom it's out? It's a very – this is a company that uh, – you know, that, I'll tell you the truth. I'd rather see you um, own clean harbors. Uh, Darling Ingredients says recycling. I like the concept. It's, it, it, the stock is down too much. and I, I'm going to embrace that. Uh, people should know this is a company that, that actually just traps the stuff that is uh, like ref, leftover refuse from restaurants. It, it's good. It's just not great. Let's go to Jeff in Oregon. Jeff. Hi, Jim. It's Jeff. Uh, I'm calling from Oregon, and I want to give a shout-out to Retail Investment Tower. But my question is about GameStop. They're set to launch an NFT marketplace at the end of the month. 
Do you think this is enough to keep investors interested? Okay, GameStop is what I call controlled stock. It's controlled by a group of investors. They announced a four-for-one stock tonight, stock split. We know that doesn't create any value, but the investors who control it move it up. There are really only two controlled stocks in our market, which is AMC and GameStop. What I say are controlled is exactly what I mean. There's no need to explain. Now, I am a lot more sanguine than just about everyone else that you hear about this market. Many stocks to me already seem to be reflecting a recession. So if we get just a stagnant economy and then a possible reacceleration with much less inflation, those stocks could go much higher. Well, Man Money tonight, ProLogic has pulled back. So this logistics R-E-I-T might be the right choice for your portfolio. It's the kind of stock that I'm talking about. I'll give you my take. Then with the market bouncing, there's a lot of chatter about a potential bottom. I'm consulting the tech technicals to see if a bottom is in or more pain could be ahead to verify my intuitive view. And buy now, pay later has been a tough corner of the market. So what could the future hold for lending tech that sells at a high multiple to sales? I'm digging into space. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact. Smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. Accessed from anywhere, you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash madmoney. Just go to Indeed.com slash madmoney right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash madmoney. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Like I told you last night, there are a ton of stocks that get cheaper as they go lower. 
I know this market's been absolutely horrifying, but when the damage gets this widespread and selling so emotional, I think you often do get excellent buying opportunities. I want to single out a couple of them. Tonight, I'm going to take uh, Prologis. Prologis is that warehouse and logistics real estate investment trust, which has seen its stock go through the meat grinder over the past few months. Now it's down roughly 30% from its April high. You almost never get it down that much. So therefore, I think it's worth buying at these levels. Full disclosure, I've been a fan of Prologis for ages, specifically since the bottom in 2009, which is where we identified it as a long-term winner. And the stock has been a huge gainer for us. They own logistics real estate all over the place, both facilities for business-to-business transactions and, more importantly, online fulfillment centers. Naturally, they made a killing at the height of the pandemic as digital channels became the safest way to transact. And everybody in retail spent a fortune building out their e-commerce platforms. But even when the world started going back to normal, this stock managed to hold up just fine. In fact, Prologis hit a new all-time high in April. Since then, though, look at this. It's just been obliterated. All right, so you got to ask first before you buy something, what went wrong here? Okay, the stock peaked a couple of days after Prologis reported a very strong beat and then a raised forecast on April 19th. Now, we spoke to CEO Hamid Mogadam that night. And he sounded very confident about the outlook for his business. So the self had nothing to do with the company's actual performance. I mean, he's been, he's been money the whole way. No, the stock started getting hammered over a week later. On April 29th, Prologis lost 7.4% of its value for falling another 4.5% the next day, ultimately going lower, 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 nine straight sessions. In total, it was down 28% over the course of that. That, uh, that is some amazing losing streak. The reason? Simple. The night before, Amazon reported a horrific quarter and admitted that they had overbuilt their warehouse capacity and logistics infrastructure. They talked about having excess capacity in the fulfillment and transportation network. Basically, Amazon overinvested in this stuff during the darkest days of the pandemic. They took a chance. They thought it might be the right thing to do. They were too, they were too pessimistic, too pessimistic about what was going to happen. So uh, they, they, keep, they keep seeing extremely high levels of demand. But then COVID receded and people started buying stuff in person again. They didn't expect that. They took a chance. I don't blame them. In order to adapt to this new environment, Amazon slashed its capital expenditure budget and said they're looking for new ways to save money on this stuff. As we said at the top, they over-earned during COVID. When Amazon says they've got way too much fulfillment uh, many and too many fulfillment centers, obviously that's bad news for a company like Prologis that owns fulfillment, fulfillment centers and leases them to other outfits. And it only got worse on June 16th. The Wall Street Journal published an article saying that Amazon may want to sublease 10 million square feet of excess warehouse space while renegotiating its leases with outside warehouse owners. And you wonder why a stock goes down. It is alarming news for Prologis. Amazon is their largest customer, counting for nearly 5% of their net effective rent. So you don't want to hear that Amazon may compete with them and also wants to negotiate down the cost of rent. But I think the sell-off in Prologis was a huge overreaction to Amazon's demands. Of course, there are other reasons why the stock has been hit, although I think Amazon's comments are the key negative catalyst. But it doesn't help that Prologis sent out a proposal to acquire Duke Realty, one of its cheap competitors, in an all-stock transaction that valued Duke at a 29% premium to where its stock had been trading. I don't think there's anything wrong with the deal, but we learned about it on May 10th when it seemed like that the whole market was falling apart. Bad timing. Duke shot down the proposal the next day, asking for more money. But that just made people worry that Prologis might raise their bid. So the stock went down again. 
Finally, there are big picture worries. Everybody's concerned that we're heading into a recession right now, and we're certainly looking at a slowdown in consumer spending. That could hurt prologis, given that the whole story is about the long-term growth of e-commerce. Doesn't hurt that bond yields have soared this year, making Prologis's 2.6% dividend yield look less attractive by comparison. A lot going wrong here. But let me tell you why I like the stock anyway. We'll take the worries one by one, starting with the biggest one, Amazon. Shouldn't we dump Prologis when its largest customer says they've got way too much logistics capacity? Not so fast. Sure, Amazon's their top customer, but it makes up 4.8% of the business. Even if Amazon's trying to renegotiate these leases or give back some space, we're talking about a very small earnings hit. And look, I don't think Amazon can strong-arm them on rent. The fact is, Prologis had an astounding 98% occupancy rate just at the end of March. They've got no trouble finding tenants. While Prologis has also been building a lot of new facilities, a substantial number of these are what's known as pre-leased, even while construction is taking place. These guys do not have a demand issue. In fact, when we spoke to the CEO in April, he said the only problem is finding land where they can build these, high, these facilities. I call it a high-quality problem. Listen to this. To convert other types of land uses that are less in demand into logistic facilities, but we we got to pull every trick out of the hat to satisfy the demand of our customers, which well, uh, seems to be insatiable. Insatiable customer demand. Well, that sure doesn't sound like someone who'd be worried about Amazon breaking some of the leases and giving them back some space. They need the space. Probably can charge more for it. Again, even if Amazon's a major tenant here, and it is, I'm willing to bet that Prologis can get better terms somewhere else because there's so much demand away from Amazon. Like it or not, e-commerce is the future. Maybe it's slowed down a little bit. I think it'll speed up again. Amazon got ahead of itself building out logistics capacity. They made a mistake. But most other companies can't afford to make that kind of mistake uh, simply because they don't have enough money. Plus, just because Amazon hints at breaking some of its leases, that doesn't mean they'll break the leases with Prologis. Some of these fulfillment center properties are in highly desirable areas. Last month, Prologis' CFO spoke at an industry conference where he said Amazon leases 150 properties from them, and they're only trying to negotiate uh, terms on two of them. Frankly, this whole thing, when I thought about that, seemed much more of a non-issue. Second thing, this Duke Realty deal. Now, last month, Prologis and Duke agreed to an all-stock merger at a price only slightly higher than the original offer back in May. Initially, Prologis saw its stock drop 7.5% on the news, falling to 108. But guess what? That's where it bottomed. Since then, it's rebounded back to roughly $121. It makes sense. The Duke Realty deal should be additive to earnings in year one, while substantially increasing Prologis' scale, all without hurting its balance sheet. These guys have been very successful with similar deals in the past, like when they bought DCT Industrial in 2018 or Lincoln Property 2019. I think it's a smart transaction. What about the broader macro concerns? Okay, look, Prologis is not a retailer. It's a steady eddy real estate investment trust. They have long-term leases with their clients for these logistics and fulfillment centers. There's only so much a garden variety slowdown can really hurt them. The bottom line, just these few lines from Amazon have sent Prologis back to where it was trading in May of 2021, erasing roughly a year of gains. Stock down trades at less than 24 times its funds from more operations forecast, which I think is a steal for one of the best secular growth stories of the past 15 years. Mad Money's back into the break. Coming up, begging for a bottom? Our chartist sees a reason for hope. Kramer shines a light. Next. You seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance 
with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. When will the pain stop? Will last month's lows be able to hold, or are we looking at still one more leg down? You know, this is what I think about every day. So far this year, bottom fishing, we know it's been a fool's errand. But stocks have now come down huge from their highs, and Wall Street feels a lot less blindly optimistic than six months ago. Positive. That said, it's an insanely emotional market, and when you're trying to spot a bottom, or a top for that matter, you need to take these emotions out of the equation. What we want is a more empirical approach to the market to go with that uh, top approach that I gave, which made me, you know, which was pretty bullish. So that's why tonight we're going off the charts with the help of Tom DeMarc and his team at DeMarc Analytics, whose work you can follow at Symbolic.com, S-Y-M-B-O-L-I-K.com. Now, DeMarc's a legendary figure in this business. He and his team have an incredible track record when it comes to time in the market, one that goes back decades. And what you need to know now is that he's feeling good about vast swaths of the stock market. Rather than searching for patterns like a typical technician, DeMarc's all about trying to identify when markets are likely to change course, ideally ahead of time. That's why he's always on the hunt for signs of trend exhaustion and price reversal inflection points. Those are the language that he likes, and I've learned to use it. You need to, too. Now, I don't want to go into too much detail about how the system works, in part because it's complicated, but also because a lot of this stuff is proprietary. Now, you can go to Symbolic.com to learn more. But what matters here is that DeMarc's proprietary indicators come down to the basic tenets of supply and demand. Remember, at the end of the day, the stock market is a market, and all markets are controlled by supply and demand. When demand is greater than supply, stocks go up. When supply is greater than demand, stocks go down. DeMarc's dedicated his whole career to spotting moments when these dynamics change. Makes sense to me. Very intuitive and rational. So when we're hunting for a bottom, the key is to identify when the sellers have run out of firepower, when everybody who is going to sell has already sold. I often talk about that, seller exhaustion. This usually happens before things get better. In fact, markets tend to bottom on bad news, not good news. You know the lows are in when something awful happens and stocks go up anyway. Think about what happened with Micron. Bad forecast, stock went up anyway. So what does this have to do with the actual market? Let's start with the Dow Jones Industrial Average and the S&P 500. On May 19th, the day of the market's previous big low, DeMarc's timing model predicted that we get two successively lower lows and closes before the average's bottom. The Dow and S&P hit those two targets, uh, hit those targets two weeks ago. However, because there was a two-week rally off the May 20th low in the first week of June, DeMarc's timing model required an extra day of weakness to recalibrate. He and his team have a 13-step buy or sell countdown model that helps them identify potential highs and lows. You get a certain number of sessions going in in the same direction, and sooner or later, the trend exhausts itself. There's more to it than that. But what you need to know is that the S&P 500 hit 13 on the buy countdown on June 16th, which suggests this was a real bottom. 
As for the Dow, it hit 13 on the buy countdown the next day. But there's a secondary countdown that's still only at 12. To DeMarc, that means the Dow may have bottomed last month, or maybe there will be one last downdraft that takes us to a lower low. Now, DeMarc's been doing this kind of analysis for 50 years, and he sees some parallels between the current market and the early 70s. Why don't you take a look at this chart, which shows the daily action in the Dow this year versus the daily action in 1973. As you can see, boy, that was a period of Belez. As you can see, he was using the same 13-step countdown even back then, and it worked just as well as it does now. They believe the relationship is noteworthy, and if it holds, we see some more choppy trading for the Dow over the next couple of months, followed by a strong rally in September and October. Okay, remember, we're following a pattern of 73, all right? But then a large decline into the end of the year. If the market's right, then right now we could be looking at an incredible trade. Next, how about the NASDAQ composite? As you can see, DeMarc's methodology called the top in this thing last November. The tech-heavy NASDAQ had run so far so fast that the uptrend was exhausted, and then it was overwhelmed by selling. You know, remember what happened. When, that was when the Fed got tough. After that, we got four straight months of weakness, but then in March, the NASDAQ hit DeMarc's 13 buy countdown. And we got a nice rally off the lows. By the end of March, though, uh, we got another sell signal. This thing's really tough. Uh, a completed nine cells setup, and the NASDAQ experienced another leg lower. Right now, it's at 12 on DeMarc's 13-step bottoming countdown, meaning the bottom probably isn't here yet. It also hasn't hit his lowest downside price target yet. More on that in a second. How about the NASDAQ 100, the extremely tech-heavy index made up of the 100 largest non-financial stocks in the NASDAQ composite? Take a look at the QQQ, which actually recorded a 13-buy countdown in the middle of last month. But here's the thing. It's not enough to just hit 13 on DeMarc's trend exhaustion countdown. In a market this tricky, he won't try to call a bottom until an index actually uh, index also hits his downside targets. Neither the Nasdaq Composite nor the Nasdaq 100 did that. He doesn't expect them to bottom until the former hits 10,515 and the latter hits 268. So that's the number you have to think about. DeMarc also has a tool that he calls his market map model, which surveys historical price action in order to predict the market's future movements. He's applied it to the Nasdaq 100 and has come up with a forecast that looks a lot like the 1973 run for the Dow. Specifically, DeMarc sees an upcoming near-term low, followed by a rally into the end of July, but then a decline into the end of August to a newer low. After that, however, he's expecting that sharp rally we talked about into late October that could recover 55 to 60 percent of the entire 2022 decline. So obviously, you want to be in for this. If you want another analogy, DeMarc thinks this upcoming bottom could be a lot like the uh, late March of 2020 bottom when everybody thought the world was ending. But the average is quickly bottomed in part because the Fed was printing money like crazy and in part because everybody who was going to sell had already sold. Remember, markets bottom on negativity, not positivity. We've spent months getting hammered based on the same horrible story. The sooner or later that gets baked in and then you're OK. And look, it's not like there's no good news. We spent all year terrified of how the Fed might have to destroy the economy to kill off inflation. But one look at the commodity markets tells you that the Fed's made tremendous progress in containing inflation, at least in commodities, uh, just for after two uh, aggressive rate hikes. So I think DeMarc might be on to something. Here's the bottom line. The charts as interpreted by Tom DeMarc suggest that with just a little more weakness, this market's finally got a legitimate chance to bottom for the first time since everything started rolling over last November. The SP 500 might have already put in its lows. I hope he's right. And more importantly, I think he is right. Let's go to Michael in Colorado, please. Michael. 
Hey, Jim. Booyah from Colorado. Booyah, Michael. What's going on? All right. You think Coinbase has what it takes to ride out the bear market, or are we going to see more deterioration along with uh, some of the other cryptos? Well, I don't really care for Coinbase. Uh, for Coinbase, Coinbase. I wish it were Coinbase, like the Corn Exchange that was the third March in Philly. Um, here's my problem with Coinbase. Uh, we have, even with the best of banks, the best of banks are all hard stocks. Now, I think they're going to get better. But I need the upside from a bank here, and I don't think Coinbase, can, uh, which uh, rescinded offers and, and people are saying is having a hard time getting talent, huh, can necessarily be the one that you want to be in for the financials. Let's go to Tyler in California, please. Tyler. Booyah, Jim. How you doing? I am doing well. How are you? I'm all right. Thank you for asking. So I was wondering, the stock I'm watching that moves up 1.4% in the same direction for every 1% move in Bitcoin, assuming I was bullish on Bitcoin, of course. And I was wondering if Mara, since it's down 80% from its, from its highs, if it's, uh, if this would be a long-term uh, hold in correlation with Bitcoin. Well, I think it is definitely correlation with Bitcoin. I'm just not sure I want to be correlated with that. Um, I was checking in some people in my mentions column on Twitter, always nice and uh, not remunerative. And people were saying, well, Jim, oh, so now you tell us you don't like uh, Bitcoin. I once again remind people that I sold my Bitcoin dramatically higher and bought a farm in Pennsylvania. And I would never think about swell- selling that farm and buying Bitcoin. And that's not just because there's tremendous largemouth bass in the pond. All right, the chart suggests this market finally has a legitimate chance to bottom for the first time since November. I, I think Tom DeMarc's right. Now, much more made money ahead. Uh, a buy now, pay later it seemingly turned into buy now, pay never. So I'm taking a closer look at the players in the space to see what could, the future could hold. Then, ahead of Friday's employment report, what key aspects should we be watching that we're not? I'll give you my take. And all your calls rapid fire in tonight's system of the lightning round. So stay with Kramer. a little story that encapsulates everything that's wrong with the fintech space. Late last Friday, we learned that Klarna Bank, a privately held Swedish financial technology company in the buy now, pay later space, was nearing a deal to raise $650 million at a $6.5 billion valuation. Now, for nearly any other privately held company, that would be great news. But for Klarna, it was horrific. Why? Because a little over a year ago, Klarna raised roughly the same amount of money at a $45.6 billion valuation. The darn thing has lost 85% of its value. And Klarna is just the latest disappointment of many in the buy now, pay later universe, as well as the broader lending technology space. These stocks were red hot a year ago, yet now they're one of the weakest areas of the market. If you got in near the highs, they've ripped your guts out. So it's worth taking a closer look, especially because, looking back, the idea of buy now, pay later is, a, let's say, a little ridiculous. This was supposed to be the next revelation, revolution and revelation in consumer credit. But retailers would do buy now, pay later when I was a kid. In the end, the practice was displaced by credit cards. But about 18 months ago, we started hearing that buy now, pay later was an incredible opportunity. In late 2020 and early 2021, Upstart and Affirm came public. While Affirm is a major player in the buy now, pay later space, Upstart's more of a lending decision software play. What matters, though, is that these stocks immediately rocketed higher. Upstart's IPO priced at $20, and by the end of the first day, it was just under $30. Less than two months later, it was in the triple digits. That was just the beginning. As for Affirm, its IPO priced at $49, and then it finished its first day at trading at $97. And while it quickly pulled back from these highs, Within months, 
it was soaring into the stratosphere. Meanwhile, there was Klarna, the largest player in the space, raising lots of money in the private market at repeatedly higher valuations. $10 billion in September 2020, then $31 billion in March of last year, then $45.6 billion last June in a soft bank-led funding round. Hmm. Same guys, by the way, with the uh, wild investments in WeWork. And I, look, I believed in buy now, pay later because I believed the stocks were going higher. And that's not really a good, rigorous uh, idea of how to do something. But it sure worked for a, lot, for a while. It worked until it didn't. The public market analogs quickly became much more valuable, too. Upstart surged all the way to 165 in March of 2021. Remember, it had come public at $20. After reporting a series of excellent earnings reports, it surged all the way to $401 at its peak last October. 20 to 400 in just 10 months. What a stock. As for the buy now, pay later business, last August we learned that Square, now known as Block, was shelling out $29 billion for buy now, pay later business called Afterpay. Space was so hot that Square actually rallied 10% on the news, although the stock peaked a few days later. How about a firm? This thing exploded higher after we learned about the Square Afterpay deal. Then it jumped 46% in a single day. And we learned that they'd reached a deal to provide buy now, pay later services to Amazon. Then it rallied another 34% after it reported a great quarter in September. A couple weeks later, <coughs> excuse me, we learned about a deal with Walmart. And that sent the stock up another 11%. By early November, the darn thing was trading at $176. Last fall, everybody wanted a piece of the buy now, pay later business. PayPal already had a BNPL offering, but snapped up a little company called Payday to get more exposure. And when we spoke to CEO Dan Schulman last November, he sounded very confident about the whole thing. Visa, MasterCard, and American Express got in on it, too. Even J.P. Morgan Chase has touted its buy now, pay later service called My Chase Plan. Unfortunately, that was the peak. Upstart's now down 92% from its highs. The firm's down 89%. Block's down 78%. And PayPal's down 76%. It's been an abominable decline. Some of this is just because those stocks were massively overvalued in the first place. At its highs, the firm was trading a little less than 30 times sales, not earnings, sales. Couldn't possibly be earnings because the firm's losing money. And they are not expected to turn profitable anytime before 2026. While Block and PayPal are profitable, they were trading at a sky-high price to earnings multiple at, at, high, at their highs last year. 170 times earnings for Block, 65 times earnings for PayPal. Where, which, again, in full disclosure, because I talk about the winners, my child trust lost a lot of money in. Now, you can get away with paying up for growth stocks for most last year. But the moment the Federal Reserve declared war on inflation in November, Wall Street turned against growth, including the whole financial technology edifice. The real turn was against innovation in finance. The buy now, pay later plays like a firm are, are, are everything this new market hates. Unprofitable, expensive Although they are well run, Max Levchin is a good manager. Um, for more diversified payment plays like Block and PayPal, they also had cryptocurrency trading exposure, which has turned into a millstone around their necks. But there's something else that changed when the Fed started raising rates. Initially, you might have thought the buy now, pay later cohort was getting killed just because they'd gone out of style in the Wall Street fashion show, which it did. Then we started hearing about an e-commerce slowdown 
as the economy reopened. A lot of this uh, buy now, pay later business is done via the Internet. And if there's less purchasing of things on the Internet, then there's less need for these companies, particularly PayPal. Things got much worse this spring, though, when investors began to worry about credit quality. A lot of us didn't even think there was any credit issues. See, a company like a firm lends people money to buy stuff. Then they repackage those loans into asset-backed securities and offload them to institutional investors. They can't raise the cash to make more loans if they don't sell off the old ones. And they need to get good terms or else the margins fall apart. But this spring, we started hearing that demand for these securities was drying up. Now, when we spoke with CEO Max Lepchin, he was dismissive of these concerns. He said the delayed securitizations were simply about taking a step back as the market adjusted to higher interest rates. But man, as recently as two weeks ago, analysts were pointing out that a firm's bad loans were getting worse and worse, making any securities backed by these loans less attractive. Again, I invite Max back if he wants to dispute these findings by the analysts. And of course, now everybody's worried about the economy heading into a recession, which would be catastrophic for the buy now, pay later business. Not only will there be more people who can't pay back their loans, but there will also be less consumer spending and less willingness to take on new debt. How about upstart? Well, this isn't a buy now, pay later play. It's worth going into more detail because I feel the story was misleading. I like the stock a lot on the way up because I thought they were merely in the business of facilitating loans using their technology, not lending money themselves. But it turns out that Upstart took on far more credit risk than we assumed. That's what made me so upset. They've now got the same issues with credit quality and declining demand for their asset-backed securities. At the end of the day, these stocks never should have been worth so much in the first place. Their business models were, ver- were much more attractive when interest rates were incredibly low. But it remains to be seen if they work in a more normal environment, like the one that the Fed actually talked about in the minutes of the release today at 2 o'clock. Plus, the moment buy now, pay later started catching on, all sorts of competitors moved in. Hey, last month, Apple joined the fray. Uh, the opportunity was never as great as they described it. I use my Apple Pay constantly. If I really wanted to do it, I would just use these guys. The bottom line. Let this be a lesson not to be caught up in euphoria, and that includes you, venture capitalists. Even if it doesn't seem like it at the time, earnings matter. Valuations matter. The economic landscape, it matters. Interest rates matter. The Fed matters. And that's what we learned this this year. And it's been agonizing if you had fintech exposure. I don't think the pain is necessarily over. Maybe the only thing left to ask about is who plays the cast of Klarna executives on the Klarna Crash program on Apple Plus, including the always amusing Masasan from the top-ticking SoftBank. Their money's back into the break. Stick around. May I make a suggestion? I would stay with him. The lightning round is coming up next. And then the light runs over. Are you ready? Ski that Some of the light run comes over. with Chris in Texas. Chris. Hey, Jim. Booyah from Texas. Good to have you. Um, is it a good time to buy Boeing? Well, I'm not going to recommend stocks that lose money with really bad balance sheets. And that's what they do. That's Boeing. Let's go to Charlie in New York. Charlie. Two weeks, but they got a lot of opinions. Hey, I mean, a lot Jim, of people I'll... talking. All right. What's up, Charlie? Jimmy there. Yeah, Charlie, how you been? What's up? Sorry, pal. Big Hudson Valley booyah. So you appreciate you taking my call. I like Hudson Valley. Good food there. What's going on? <laughs> hey, another 52-week low today, but with earnings coming up later this month, 
Do I add, hold, or sell X, U.S. Steel? Thanks. Okay, there's too much negativity on steel right now. The one you would buy is new core. It has to come down a little bit more because there are people generally believe that the numbers haven't been cut down enough. Let's go to Kurt in Nebraska. Kurt. Hey, Jim. How are we doing? Thanks for taking my call. Yeah, thank you, Kurt. What's up? What if I get your opinion on Skyline Champion, ticker symbol SKY? Uh, you know, factory housing, let me just buy real housing. How about buy Toll Brothers? That's the one I would buy. Let's go to Lucas in Minnesota. Lucas. Hey, Jimmy. Yo, Welcome yo. to the second half, my friend. First, ah. I want to thank you for keeping the morning show so positive and informative during this downturn. Thank you. My lightning round stock is actually Alibaba. Okay, I think Baba can go up, but I'm not recommending any Chinese communist stocks because I think the Chinese communist government has decided to suck us in and then hurt us again, and I won't let that happen on my watch. Let's go to Michael in California. Michael. Hey, uh, Jim, in the carnage of my tech portfolio, I have a couple of tech companies that I don't hear much about. Okay. Whose year-to-date stock prices have weathered the storm better than the rest, including stalwarts Google, Microsoft, and Apple. I'd like to get your long-term take on Synopsis. Look, look, I've always liked Synopsis. It's a designer of integrated circuits. I do believe the semiconductor stocks have come down too much. Uh, And there are other semiconductor companies that I think are cheaper to buy than that one. And they are all in my, uh, if you just want to check, you can go right to the investing club. You'll see the best of the best of the semis. Let's go to Steve, my home state of New Jersey. Steve. Hey, Jim. How are you doing today? I am good. How are you? Doing good. Um, The stock I'm calling about is the arbitrage play. But without the problems of Microsoft and Activision, the company is the auto parts maker being taken private at 20. It's trading now at 17.16. The deal will close second half of this year, and it's already approved by the board and shareholders. Jim, what's your opinion of Kenneco? Okay, I'd be very careful. I, I don't mean to be punning on a lot of stocks, but I am not an arbitrator, and therefore I do not have a great call on what will happen with 10. So I am very sorry. And that, ladies and gentlemen, the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. This weekend, this weekend I, I had a, a reviewing story. Two kids trying to get jobs bagging groceries were told to submit the resumes. And after a short interval, they were told the resumes would be kept on file. But the answer was no. You know, I thought we had a labor shortage. Now, it's entirely possible that this one-off anecdote it has nothing to do with the true state of the economy. On Friday, when we get June's national employment data, we may think that these two kids were just knuckleheads. But what if we see some declines in hiring, something that would immediately tamp down on wage inflation? One thing I know for sure is that we have a surfeit of gloom in this country, a glut of gloom. When you're gloomy, you don't expand your business or hire as many people. You might not necessarily fire anyone, but then again, you also might invest in technology so you can do more with fewer workers. And maybe you don't want any more baggers. All over, I see oddities, job situations and flux that show you genuine labor market weakness out of nowhere. We have many inner cities where businesses are losing money because of theft, especially due to organized crime. Items are stolen and then sold to a fence who sells it on Amazon. In that environment, you want to close stores, not open them, and that's what many big stores are doing. They just want to talk about it. It's the first time I've ever heard of theft causing a decline in a portion of the economy that had been growing over time. 
But as it is, retail has too much inventory, although pilferage is a real bad way to clear it out. Uh, and by the way, if you want to keep all your inventory, all you do is put it behind lock and key. Hey, that moronic idea just seems to have taken over the whole country. Then there's the oddity of the crypto winter. It feels like every day we discover that there's another crypto outfit that can't get bailed out uh, and has to go under. Yesterday, Vault froze withdrawals. Today, Voyager filed for bankruptcy. I guess we're in the V's. How many more are left? We don't know how many people worked at these companies. They're so in the shadows. But Coinbase recently let go uh, 1,110 employees and rescinded offers. I know that Vault and Voyager aren't big, maybe 100 people each. But when you include the hedge funds that have been blown up and the people who were trading crypto successfully until now, I think, well, you have enough people who need to find jobs to actually move the needle. Of course, we have some traditional layoffs coming. Goldman Sachs made a point on its last conference call that it had many levers to pull if things got bad, including layoffs. Hey, things are bad. They are bad for everyone on Wall Street. I expect large layoff numbers this quarter, although they haven't been announced, so I don't know. Rabbits out of hat. But it's the non-traditional layoffs that I think may have the most weight because no one's thinking about them. Particularly not the people on Wall Street who are shocked when interest rates go lower. I'm talking about layoffs connected to the Internet. Now, we haven't seen a slowdown in the Internet space since the dot-com collapse 22 years ago. But according to multiple research reports just this morning, that's what's happening. Gaming peaked at the height of COVID. We don't need more game developers now. Piper Stanley just said the Internet is growing at half the pace it was not that long ago. Amazon, by its own admission, has too many people. We even know that Meta Platforms is laying off people, although it could still grow its total headcount. I think we'll see massive layoffs layoffs at many financial tech companies. Ultimately this week, this might even hit computer scientists and coders, areas where demand has been endless for ages. These layoffs will be part of a different kind of fabric in this economy, a frame one that got built up too aggressively during the pandemic. I think they'll offset whatever small and medium-sized businesses we have still that are growing, resulting in a more balanced employment report. Yet I expect the Labor Department numbers to show a definitive cooling. No one else is thinking that, so I'm I'm an outlier. But these numbers will tell you that the boom is ending. Not with a bang, but a pastiche of a whimper. The only question is when. Will we see that slowdown on Friday? It's possible. But if not, I bet it'll be next month when those failed grocery baggers appear on the rolls. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Drew Kramer. See you tomorrow. The news with Shepard Smith starts now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.